Looking around the man's garden this week, as the snow was melting, I could see signs of new life beginning. Buds appearing in the trees and the bushes, bulbs pushing their leaves up through the frosty soil. Now, of course, these early appearances of new life in the garden are a reminder to us that COVID is not the only emergency we face in this world. There's also the serious issue of climate change and our need to address the, ca the causes of global warming. But even so, there's cheer that comes with these signs of new life. And I hope as soon as these buds open into leaves and flowers, I'll be able to share with you something of the new colours of spring, which I'm sure will lift all our hearts. Today in our service, we're going to be looking at what the Bible tells us about the period after Jesus' birth. That period he was growing up and preparing to emerge and to blossom into the ministry that was uniquely his, given to him by his heavenly father. Now, as we think of that period, is it pure speculation or does God give us some important lessons? We'll get into that in a few minutes. But first, as we embark on this next stage of our journey from Christmas to the cross, let's come before God in the song, This Child. Two weeks ago, we had a rather speedy overview of the four Gospels in the New Testament. And when you read these Gospels, you might wonder why after Mark and, and Luke tell us in detail about the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, there is so very little recorded about Jesus' actual childhood. 
I'm pretty sure that Luke must have heard many childhood stories from Jesus' mum Mary. After all, what parent can avoid extolling the exploits of their children, especially such a unique and important child? And yet in the Gospels, there's very little recorded about Jesus' childhood or teenage years. As if to make up for that, in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, there were many legends that arose about the boy Jesus and were put into numerous apocryphal Gospels. These writings were written in Greek-speaking areas, far removed from the land of the eyewitnesses. And they are, in a whole, a strange and rather fanciful account of Jesus' childhood, which the early church rejected as not having the authority of the four earliest Gospels, which we have in the New Testament. There are two things that speak for the wisdom of the church in recognising the authority of only Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. One is that there are so few stories about Jesus' childhood in them. It's clear that the writers were not really that interested in feeding the pious curiosity of the church with legends about Jesus' childhood. Rather, they're content to leave almost 30 years of blank space in Jesus' life because their interest in writing was on the heart of the gospel, not on the peripheral matters. And then secondly, the, the other thing is that the one story which Luke does include in his gospel in chapter 2, verse 41 to 52, is so reserved that it's quite unlike most of these later legends of Jesus' childhood. It does not portray Jesus as doing any supernatural deed or speaking in an unduly authoritative way. In fact, the story that we do have in the gospel reaches its climax and its main point, not in some great supernatural feat, but in the sentence, I must be about my father's business or I must be in my father's house. After the spectacularly fanciful stories that were made up later about the young Jesus, this account in Luke 2 seems a bit drab at first reading. And that's precisely, I think, what speaks in favour of its authenticity. For unlike the later apocryphal stories, it does not appear to be motivated by a desire to overplay Jesus' uniqueness. The claim to uniqueness is much, much more subtle. And that accords with the way that we see Jesus acting most of the time in the rest of the Gospels. And the language of the writing is different too. If you read the commentators, you discover that biblical language scholars have identified that while the apocryphal stories come from a, a, a time and a place where Greek was spoken widely, the story in the Gospel is a story almost certainly a Greek translation of, a, of the Semitic language of Palestine. And that means that it was Jewish in content and in language and therefore probably originated in Palestine. And as we've previously seen, the most likely source of that story is Mary herself. So let's hear that story as Luke records it. Luke chapter 2 from verse 41. Luke chapter 2 Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was twelve years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, 
While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Well, this story we've just heard is the only story in the Gospels about Jesus between his infancy and the start of his public ministry as a man. And some have argued that, like the, the later, more fanciful stories, this is also a legend created by the early church to fill some gaps in their knowledge of Jesus' life. And yet, we already know from our studies that Luke puts a, a high premium on eyewitness confirmation. We also know from the, the book of Acts that while Paul was imprisoned for these two years in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, Luke was probably roaming around Jerusalem up into Galilee, collecting information to put into his gospel. And three times in the early chapters of Luke's gospel, he mentions people keeping experiences locked away in their hearts, that is, remembering them. In chapter 1, verse 66, he said that all who heard how John the Baptist was born laid it up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? Chapter 2, verse 19, after the, the shepherds had come into Bethlehem, Luke says, but Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then here at the end of our, our reading for today, in chapter 2, verse 51, it says, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. So isn't the most likely reason for mentioning this storing up of memories to give Theophilus to whom Luke was writing and to give us a clue as to how he, a Gentile foreigner, was able to write as much as he did about Jesus' childhood. So already we can see that this one story is much more reserved than all of the apocryphal legends. And we see that Luke's great concern is to trace things out carefully and to confirm it with eyewitnesses. And also we see how Jewish the setting and the language is and how easily available Mary probably was to share that story. And so any claim that this story in Luke chapter 2 is legendary, it, I think is wrong and probably stems from an unwillingness to own up to the main point of the story, namely that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. As we go through this story this morning, let's look out for that main point. 
and what lessons there are for our lives. Firstly, Luke stresses how devout and how law-abiding Jesus' parents were. Verse 41, we, we read that his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. Earlier, at Jesus' birth, we'd seen how Mary and Joseph did all that the Mosaic law required after his birth. And by stressing these things, Luke tries to help Theophilus accept the fact that although Jesus was killed by the Jewish teachers, it was not really because he was outside the Jewish faith. Jesus' parents, and now we will see Jesus himself, were actually devoted to the law of Moses. They loved it, they studied it, they obeyed it. And very soon in his Gospel in chapter 4, Luke will show that when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth, the real reason why he, a devout Jew, could be rejected and killed by his own people. So verse 42 says, when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Now the fact that this happened when Jesus was age 12 is probably significant. It looks back to the, to the weaning of, of Isaac in, in the book of Genesis in chapter 21, as does the, the much later Jewish ceremony of Bar Mitzvah. The twelfth year is the final year of preparation for a Jewish boy before he enters full participation in the religious life of the synagogue. Up until that time, his parents, especially his father, teach him the commands of the law. But at the end of the twelfth year, the child goes through a ceremony by which he formally takes on the yoke of the law and becomes a bar mitzvah, a son of the covenant, son of the commandment. In his gospel, Luke tells us that this was the year Jesus chose to stay behind in the temple. And perhaps at this crucial turning point in every Jewish boy's life, Jesus wanted to demonstrate subtly for those who had eyes to see that he would be more than an ordinary Jewish bar mitzvah, or whatever it was called back then. His insight into the commandment was more profound than ordinary men, and his relation to God was unique. Both of these things will become more evident in a moment. If you read on, verse 43 and 44 says, And when the, the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it, but they supposed him to be in the company, so they went a day's journey. Just imagine, that would be like uh, Elizabeth and I driving from Creef to Cardiff and then realising that we'd left one of the children behind and having to drive back again. Only it's worse, they were probably walking. And there are two things that stand out here as they, and they seem inconsistent. Firstly, there's Jesus' apparent disregard for his parents' time and feelings. And then secondly, there's the implicit faith that Mary and Joseph have in their 12-year-old son. If he'd been an irresponsible child, his parents would never have gone a whole day's journey without knowing his whereabouts. They trusted him and they, they knew Jesus had good judgment. And what this suggests to me is that Jesus' motive in staying behind was not carelessness or disrespect for his parents. Evidently, he intentionally let them go in order to demonstrate something more forceful. 
And so we read on in verse 43 through to 46. They sought him among their own kinsfolk and their acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking after him. And after three days, they find them in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, there's no way for us really to know whether this means three days since leaving Jerusalem, one out, one back, one searching around the town, or whether it means actually three days searching in Jerusalem. But I think it's hard to imagine three days searching in Jerusalem because probably Jesus and his parents would have gone to the same place to spend each night. How Mary and Joseph and Jesus feel about this search comes out later. Just like being at school or university, here in this story we see the relationship between teachers and students, the role of listening and, and querying and answering. And thank goodness we have the technology just now for our children and our teachers to engage with each other in that way. But we also get a glimpse into the mystery of how the divine and the human natures unite in the one person, Jesus. If Jesus is God, how can he increase in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men, as we read in verse 52? And then thirdly, finally, perhaps this sentence also reminds you of a scene some 18 years later. But perhaps some of these very same teachers, instead of engaging pleasantly with Jesus, were gnashing their teeth at this boy's wisdom and wanting to kill him. Let's rest it there for a few minutes before we make a final few observations about each of these three topics. And as we pause, we'll sing the song by Cool Siloam's Shady Rill. ground 
So let's get to the first of the, the, the three points, the time that Jesus spent engaging with these teachers in the temple. And as Luke writes, he's writing so that firstly Theophilus should understand that Jesus knew and loved the law from a very early age. And in the, the very city where he was to be lynched 20 years later, he was approved at the age of 12. Or perhaps he wasn't approved. You see, you can be astonished at something that you don't like. And maybe the teachers of the law did not care for the implications of Jesus' answers. But then, of course, a 12-year-old boy is no real threat. They can pat him on the head and, and, and say things like, oh, smart kid, and, and then return to their hair splitting and their hypocrisy. And then secondly, the story has important implications, I think, for understanding the divinity of Christ. It helps us to understand what the Apostle Paul meant when he later wrote, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Philippians 2 verse 6. Now one of the things that Christ emptied himself of was a big word, a, a word called omniscience. He said concerning the time of his return in Matthew 24, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And similarly, here at the temple, Jesus is not just playing games with the scribes. His, he questions, his questions aim f to gain insight, for verse 52, of course, says he increased in wisdom. But it's not easy to imagine how Christ, Jesus, can be God and, and not be omniscient. Evidently, in the incarnate Christ was able somehow to, to bracket or to limit the actual exercise of his divine powers so that he had the personality of God, basically the, the, the motives and the will of God, but the powers of knowing all things and the infinite strength of God, he somehow held back and restrained. They were his potentiality. And thus he was God. But Jesus surrendered their use absolutely. And so he was man. And therefore the child here in the temple is not so different from us that he can't serve for us as an example. For us, for our children, for our grandchildren. And that brings us to the, the, the third topic triggered by verse 46 and 47. I think we can learn something here from the way that Jesus related with these teachers. There are four things that we see. He sought out the teachers. He sat in their midst. He listened. He asked questions. And he gave answers. And I infer from this that if the Son of God sought out these teachers and listened and asked questions and gave answers about the things of God, then so should we. Those of us in the church should be doing these same things. We should be listening to good teaching. We should be sitting alongside one another as we learn. We should be asking questions. We should be sharing our answers as we, as we read and understand God's word. 
And yet so often we spend little time tackling the, the glorious revelation of God in the Bible and trying to understand it from cover to cover and to, to see how it all fits in together in a grand unity. And yet in this story of the young Jesus, we should be challenged by his example to strive for increased wisdom and understanding of Scripture. If Jesus did it, then so should we. Verse 48 to 50. When his parents saw him, he, they were astonished. And, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Your, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. Literally, we've been looking for you in pain. And Jesus said to them, Why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be about my father's business? And they did not understand the saying, which he spoke to them. Now this last statement, they did not understand Jesus, is Luke's way of saying to us, the reader, look out, there's more here than meets the eye. This is the point. Don't miss it. And Luke, of course, uses that same phrase of the disciples who later on did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he predicted his own death. We read that in Luke 18. And again, Luke says, this is the point. Don't miss it. And so as we consider the story of the young Jesus in the temple and his parents finding him and, and Jesus being surprised that they were looking for him and they couldn't find him except when they came to the temple, the main point, the main point of the whole passage probably lies in the contrast between your father, and I've been looking for you, and my father. Mary says, your father and I have been anxiously, painfully searching for you. And Jesus answers, you should have known that I would been, have been at the house of my father. In other words, Jesus has chosen this crucial stage in his life, just on the brink of manhood, to tell his earthly parents in an unforgettable way that he now knows who his real father is and what it will mean for his mission. It will mean, as Simeon said in Luke 2.35, a, a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary. The time will come when Jesus will be killed at Jerusalem and after three days rise from the dead and that will be a great pain to Mary. Perhaps this three-day vigil of Mary and Joseph in Jerusalem searching for Jesus is a foreshadowing of that experience. Mary said, your father and I have been seeking for you in pain. And so it seems to me that the main teaching of this passage is that Jesus now recognises his unique sonship to God and that his mission will require of him a devotion to God's purposes so great that it takes precedence over even the closest family ties. Jesus must follow his calling, even if it brings pain and misunderstanding. In this way, Luke, in his gospel, sets the stage for the adult ministry of the Son of God. And God willing, 
it's to that that we will turn next time. Isn't that a great hymn, Lord of All Hopefulness, beautifully sung. And the structure of the hymn that, we, that we've just shared, it comes to us as a reminder of God's promise to be with us throughout our life, if only we invite Jesus into our hearts. That truly can be a hope to us, a hope to hold on to even in the most difficult times of life. And the structure of the hymn, of course, speaks about childhood, youth, adulthood, old age and beyond. Here in the Mans, we have had some health challenges over recent weeks. You might hear it in my voice this morning. And just this past week, I learned that a good friend is in critical care because of the COVID virus. The devastating number of people who have now succumbed to that virus in this country and around the world should drive us to that hope, that hopefulness that we find only in God. For it's far greater than any hope we can have in the efficacy of a vaccine. For hope in God can change our whole life in this earthly life and beyond. Like Jesus at the temple, we are part of a, a far greater story. And as we look back in our lives, we come to understand the hand of God upon us at work in our life. 
The remembering of the past is an integral part of what it is to be human. For in our remembering, we recall the, 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 the people and the events that have shaped us and, and made us into who we are today. And in that act of remembering, we often seek to make sense of and come to terms with the past. And in the depths of our remembering, we acknowledge and lament loss. At this particular time, we're profoundly conscious of the depth of loss within the communities and the nation of which we are a part. In the book of Psalms, the psalmist affirms that God remembers and that in particular, God remembers the covenant made with the people of God. The one who forges a relationship with the people of God is the one who remembers the covenant forever. Psalm 111. In our remembering, we recall the one who remembers us and who does not forget all that we endure in hard times. So let us pray. And again, I invite you to join me in the prayer when I say, Lord, in your mercy, the response is hear our prayer. We pray together. God, who remembers, be with us in our remembering this day. Be with us on the journey that takes us from the past and into the future that lies before us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, who remembers, be with us in our remembering this day. Be with us as we recall those who have shaped us and the events that have made us. Grant to us grace and healing in all we recall. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God who remembers, be with us in our remembering this day. Be with us in sorrow and in loss and come beside all who mourn this day. Come beside us and do not leave us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, who remembers, be with us in our remembering this day. Be with those who serve in hospitals and in homes and who by their medical and nursing skills provide comfort and hope to those who suffer. In the silence, we name the folks who are on our hearts today. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God who remembers, be with us in our remembering this day. Be with us as a community and a nation and strengthen us in all we endure. Even in the darkness, may we find your light renewed through Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
and hear us as we pray for the coming of your kingdom in the words Jesus taught his friends. As we pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, friends, I look forward to uh, chatting with some of you uh, on Zoom after the service today. Can I invite you to to also join us on Zoom on Monday night, half past seven, for short prayer time, half hour prayer between half seven and eight o'clock. You'll find details of that on the on the link, and and we will have that on the the Facebook page, the website as well. So you can find details of how to get onto onto our Zoom prayer time. It's important for us to come together and to pray as the the church family here in Creef. So I hope you'll join in that time. Until we we, we next engage with one another, may you know the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit to descend upon you and to remain with you now and always. Amen.